Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Welcome to another episode of the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. I am Anthony Cazenza, joined by John Sheeran, my usual co-host. A very special episode, and we'll tell you why in just a second. John, how are you? Are you? Are you are, is your energy level up this week? Are you? Uh, you feeling it? You feeling it based on our special guest? I am. I am starting to feel it. It is July. It's the best month of the year. <laughs> it's my birth. It's my birthday month. Um, oh, okay. So yeah, I, I'm starting to get the energy now. It's, it's I'm, I'm, I'm generating a little vicariously through our, through our guest here, but I'm, I'm, I'm hanging in there. Okay, well, good, good. You got to get the energy level up because we have a very special guest, former Bengals quarterback, Ken Anderson, former NFL MVP, Super Bowl quarterback. Just really, really grateful for your time. Really grateful for you to come on our program, Mr. Anderson. How are you? I am doing fine. Been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks now when we first started to line this up. Yeah, we have been also, and you know, you've you've we've seen you make appearances on some of our other friends' shows, and we've been envious, we've been excited, and uh, we're we're grateful to have you on, talk some Bengals, and obviously have you promote the Ken Anderson Alliance Foundation that you've started. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. For those tuning in live, whether it's through the Cincy Jungle Facebook page or our YouTube channel, we are coming at you at a little bit different time, but. We do have the donate link in both uh, the chats. So click on that, donate how you can if you haven't already, or if you have already, do it again, donate because nonprofits are very, uh, very near and dear to this show's heart and they are in need of assistance. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. Ken, um, I I guess let's kind of start with a little bit of of a reflection on your uh, your career. There is a, an interesting parallel with the Bengals in their current state. Now they have a new franchise quarterback and a rookie quarterback, number one overall pick Joe Burrow. You know, I've, I've long said that a, a rookie quarterback usually leans on maybe a really talented tight end, a pass catching tight end in their first year. Um, obviously talented wideouts. There are a lot of different options for Joe Burrow, but going back to your specific career, you played with a lot of talented skill position players as a rookie quarterback, a young quarterback, who was the guy that you kind of felt was, this is my security blanket. This is my guy. I, I know I'm making a big play. If things aren't going right in the game, this is my guy right now to help build my confidence and get the team moving in the right direction in this game. Well, I think there's probably a couple of them for me. Number one was number eight, 19, Essex uh, Johnson. Hmm. Was a, a great running back. Uh, never got his due. Um, he injured his knee in our playoff game against Miami in 1973 and was never really quite the same after that. But I remember just throwing, it was, uh, uh, 86 halfback curl was Bill Walsh's. We had, uh, Bob Trumpy was on a little curl route. The halfback did a little in route. I read the middle linebacker. If he went towards the tight end, I threw it to Essex. 
I'd throw a five-yard pass. He'd take it 80 yards. Uh, you'd hand off to him on 28 grace, and he'd go around and follow the guard, and, and he'd make about 20. So he was just a, an outstanding running back. And then, of course, I, I talked about him, Bob Trumpy. You know, I think any quarterback, the safest throws that you can throw are to the tight end who's kind of right in front of you. And I always describe Bob as he was Rob Gronkowski before Gronkowski. Mm. You know, he was that guy that was, you know, 6'5", and he was the 250-ish kind of guy, which was big at that time for, you know, a tight end. He could block the edge at the line of scrimmage, but he was also fast enough that he was a mismatch for a strong safety or a linebacker. And, uh, you know, you look back at the old film, and we would split him out as a wideout. Uh, of course, which they do, uh, you know, there's a lot of tight ends that are doing that nowadays, but Trumpy was one of the first to do that. So those those were my two guys. We've heard a lot this offseason specifically about the narrative that Cincinnati is where quarterbacks go to die. And I think it's interesting that it's the same team that drafted one of the most talented quarterbacks of like the era of the AFL and NFL merger and Greg Cook to have him play a year, get injured, and then the very next year draft a guy out of a school that nobody knows of, of Augustine College, Augustina College in the third round and then have him have a Hall of Fame caliber career. What was that transition like? Because uh, there have been plenty of Hall of Famers that have gone to small schools and plenty of Hall of Famers that have been drafted outside of the, uh, of the top of the draft. But what was that transition like going from the middle of nowhere to the team that Paul Brown ran so autocratically? Well, you know, it was lucky for me. You know, when they talk about the year of the quarterback, if you look back at that draft, uh, number one was Jim Plunkett who had a pretty good career. Number two was Archie Manning. Number three was Dan Pastorini. The first three picks of the draft from Santa Clara all had very good careers. And then it was Lynn Dickey in the third round. I won in the third round. And then Joe Theismann won after us. So those are our six quarterbacks that uh, I'll compare to anybody, any draft class that they've had. But uh, in fact, uh, I think it was about a, a year ago that we there was an article on, on sportsillustrated.com and they were talking to all of us about, you know, that was really the first year of the quarterback. And Jim Plunkett, it says, I was the lucky one, you know, meaning me, that I got drafted by Cincinnati that was a stable franchise with Paul Brown as the owner and the head coach and Bill Walsh as my offensive, uh, you know, coach. And you look at, you know, Jim, who went number one to the Patriots and then he went to the 49ers. He really never had any success till his third team when he went to the Raiders. And, and Archie has had a, a great career, but never played on a winning team. You know, made us a very great life for himself in New Orleans. Is still down there. In fact, I chatted with him, you know, not too long ago. Uh, you know, Dan Pastorini kind of bounced around a little bit from, you know, Houston. And then, then he went, uh, I think, to the Raiders for a little bit. And then, uh, you know, it was interesting because Houston drafted Pastorini number one and Lynn Dickey number three. You know, two quarterbacks in the same draft, one and three, and then Lynn ended up going to the Green Bay Packers. So, you know, of course, we know what Joe Theismann started off in Canada and then went, uh, you know, on to great success with, uh, you know, the Washington Redskins. So, you know, I was kind of the lucky one to get in that stable situation with a, a great-minded Paul Brown and a great offensive mind in Bill Walsh. Talking with former Bengals great quarterback Ken Anderson, giving us some time to talk about his career the current state of the Cincinnati Bengals, and of course, the Ken Anderson Alliance Foundation, his foundation that he started. We are very grateful for his time. 
Ken, I hate to go here. Uh, I'm sure you've been asked about this ad nauseum. My co-host teed it up a little bit about the Hall of Fame caliber career. You talked about a stable franchise in the Cincinnati Bengals. That's not the perception. I think all of us that follow the NFL, that follow the Cincinnati Bengals, think it's absolutely criminal you are not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame based on your credentials and what you did in the NFL. Uh, I guess my question is a little bit two-pronged. How much resentment are you holding based on that uh, snub? Um, hopefully, and, and you know Bengals fans are doing what they can to get the, the folks at Canton to change that. Um, and, and do you think just the lack of franchise success, maybe even in an era that you didn't play, the 1990s, is playing into the snubbing of you being in Shrine in Canton? Well, you know, I, I don't know about snubbing me. I think we've got several other players that deserve right. to be in. One of them was my great teammate, Kenny Riley, who just passed away. Um, you know, he's fifth on the all-time list in number of interceptions. You know, when you look at quarterbacks and st statistics, you know, back in, in when I played, they, they weren't as gaudy as they are now, and you kind of get lost in time. But his 65 interceptions is still number five all-time. In the area that he played in, they didn't throw the football as much. Um you know, I think, you know, when I look back at, at the 70s and 80s, we were as good a football team as there was in the National Football League. And unfortunately for us, we kind of ran into this team in our division called the Pittsburgh Steelers that may have had one of the great teams of all time in, in that era. But, we you know, we held our own against them. We had the best record against the Steelers of anybody in the National Football League, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s. And then we followed it right up with Boomer Esiason, you know, who had great years. We go to another Super Bowl with him. You know, I, I think the 90s probably hurt the perception of the Bengals. And I think, you know, even today, uh, you know, Andy Dalton came in and, and took the team to the playoffs his first five years. But I don't think the Bengals ever got the respect ar around the league I think that we deserve. Uh, it, it is a good franchise. Um, I'm excited, you know, we, we, Joe Burrow is coming there. And, and I've had a chance to chat with him a, a little bit on, uh, you know, texting him, uh, you know, welcoming, welcoming him to Cincinnati. But it is a, a good franchise. Uh, they want to win. That's not the perception sometimes of the public. Uh, he'll do very well there. And like any quarterback, you've got to have the talent around you to be successful. And I like what they did in the offseason. They really bolstered the defense. If we get our offensive line solidified uh, a little bit when, you know, A.J. Green is going to be healthy this year and, you know, drafted another receiver, uh, you know, with the, the second-round draft choice, we get Jonah Williams back this year, a big left tackle that ought to help out. I think the Bengals are on the rise again. So did you reach out to Joe Burrow did, or did he reach out to you? No, I, I uh, called our, the uh, Jeff Hobson with uh, the, the Bengals website. I said, you know, I really like to, you know, to, to welcome him to Cincinnati as a quarterback. Uh, you know, can you contact him? He said, let me do it. And he said, yeah, he'd, uh, he'd love to, 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 you know, here's his phone number. He'd love to get, get a hold of you. So I texted him and kind of welcome. You know, we've got great quarterback tradition in Cincinnati. Uh, some people may not remember that, but, uh, you know, it's been, you know, as you mentioned, you know, from Greg Cook uh, to me to Boomer, those are three pretty good ones in a row. And then, you know, we take Carson Palmer, number one. And, you know, when we drafted Andy Dalton in the second round from TCU, and if you would have said, hey, man, we're going to take this quarterback, he's going to take us to the playoffs his first five years, I'm in. You know, we'll sign up for that. And unfortunately for Andy, and I'm a big Andy Dalton fan, uh, you know, I, I think all of a sudden the, the talent around him eroded a little bit. He took the brunt of that, but uh, Andy's still a pretty good quarterback. 
We had a question from our Facebook live chat from uh, Mike Holbrook. Uh, can we get a funny locker room story from Ken? A funny yeah. locker room story. Or, or maybe something about maybe uh, something behind the scenes about Mike Brown, Paul Brown, that yeah, you would think would well, be entertaining. Because you knew them as both a player and a coach with the team. Well, so. I'm, I'm going to give you the locker room, but it's not my locker room. Okay. Uh, um, unfortunately, uh, the 1979 was, was the worst Bengals team I was ever on. We were awful. And we're playing Pittsburgh late in the year, and we're getting killed. And in the fourth quarter, Joe Green sacks me again. And he's laying on top of me. He says, Kenny, why don't you come in the locker room for a beer after the game? And at the old Three Rivers Stadium, the locker rooms were right next to each other. And so I showered quickly and I go into the locker room. And the first guy I see is Terry Bradshaw. And he sees me and he stops his media interviews. And he takes me to the back of the locker room and they turned off their sauna. And, you know, you've been in those, those group saunas. You know, there's three rows, you know, uh, around the heater. They turn off the heater and had a large garbage can full of beer in their locker room. And so Bradshaw clears out a couple of seats for me and him on the front row. And I have two or three beers and I'm feeling better about life. And I go out to catch the buses to go to the airport and they're gone. Oh, and I said, wow. how do I explain that I got fined and had to buy a plane ticket from Pittsburgh to Cincinnati because I'm in the Steelers locker room drinking beer. So I'm walking around the stadium trying to find a cab to the airport. And there's the equipment truck with Tom Gray. And I run and I flag it down and I ride in the back of the equipment truck. And uh, we, we get to the airport, and for some reason, our plane was delayed, and we pulled up to the gate, and a security guy lets me in the door, and everybody's standing around. And at first, I'm upset. You know, the starting quarterback's not there, and they don't know. Then I started wondering, we're having a bad year. Maybe they know, and they just don't care. So, and then, you know, you know when you talk about Paul Brown, it, it was – he was a very stoic man, Um especially when you were playing, you know, he, he never raised his voice, but you would go in to, to watch the film and, you know, he'd go in and he's got his, uh, his khaki pants on and his white t-shirt and his, his black uh, hat with CB on it. And he had his coaching shoes on and his yellow legal pad. And he would go through the game and the corrections and well, Anderson looks like this game's just a little too big for you. Oof. Maybe it's time to find your life's work. Uh, you know, and, and that was, you know, kind of the, the way, way it was. And, you know, it just, uh, you know, he, he always had the upper hand. Even when he was not coaching, but he was the general manager. But what was really special for me is the relationship you got to develop when I was done playing. And I remember one of the, the special things, and, and when I retired, I was working for a local uh, uh, television station, Channel 12 in, in Cincinnati. And and I had a, a, a Bengals special on every Monday night before the Monday night football game at that time. And we did a, a segment that's called PB Remembers. And he and I went up to the, the, the upper deck of, of Riverfront Stadium. And we sat in two seats. We had a cameraman. And he and I just talked from the start of his career at Maslin High School to Ohio State to the Great Lakes Naval Academy to the Browns to the Bengals. And one of the most entertaining and enchanting times I've ever had. And, you know, he opens up a little bit more to you when you're an, an ex-player than when you're playing for him. Well, I got to tell you, Ken, um, the, the, those stories are, uh, especially the first one about the Steelers locker room. We've had Solomon Wilcots on this show. We've had Tim McGee on this show. We've had Icky Woods on this show. They've relayed some funny stories about Paul Brown and their experiences. That, that might take the cake, that, that one about the, the beer and the sauna. That's, that's pretty amazing.
That would um, never happen nowadays, I'll tell you that. <laughs> probably not. Probably not, especially with the, how bad that relationship between those two teams has especially deteriorated recently. Um, kind of kind of transitioning a little bit to a little bit of the current state and kind of, you know, uh, segueing there. there. You were on the Bengals when a new kind of hotshot coach took over towards the end of your career in Sam Weish, known as an offensive wizard, really innovative guy, um, you know, he and Boomer paired uh, nicely, uh, you know, once once Boomer took over after your illustrious career and uh, they did a lot of great things. You had some experience with Sam on a number of different levels. Do you see any kind of parallel between Sam Weish, his offensive mind and what Zach Taylor is trying to do with the Cincinnati Bengals and his supposed offensive prowess? Wow, that's uh, that that's a good one because I, I think Zach and Sam had two totally different personalities. You know, we we know Sam, uh, you know, running across the field when they're playing the Cleveland Browns and people are throwing snowballs. You don't live in Cleveland, you live in Cincinnati. You know, and and Sam w- w- was kind of you know that kind of person. But you know, I, I think you know from being innovative of what you want to do offensively, I think there are some parallels, you know, there today. You know, of course, Sam, it was the no huddle offense and the Bengals nowadays are, you know, using a lot of, you know, 11 personnel, you know, one tight end, three wide receivers, one running back and going to a lot of shotgun and doing that. And and, and really, you know, getting to know Zach a little bit, I, I think they're doing a great job on offense to put players in a position to be successful. I think that's what Sam did as well. And you know, Boomerang, that no huddle offense, uh, as well as anybody has ever done in the National Football League. And uh, I don't know if the Bengals, you know, with a rookie quarterback, are going to too much no huddle. But I think they're going to have a solid plan. They've got a, a, a lot of weapons that they can go to. I think, you know, with, with Joe Mixon and Giovanni Bernard, they've got a running game, weapons on the outside. And uh, again, for any quarterback, I think it goes to the five guys, the five guys up front. And I look at, you know, the, the times that I was good in my career and, you know, the mid-70s when we're going to the playoffs and, you know, when you've got, to, you know, Johnson and Pat Matson and Howard Fest and Guy Dennis and Rufus Mays and, and Vernon Holland as an offensive line. And when the offensive line went down, I kind of went down, and all of a sudden we've got Munoz and Montoya and Blair Bush and Lapham and Bujnak and Mike Wilson. Wow, I became a good quarterback again. So I think, you know uh, – Unfortunately, a quarterback, you know, you like the weapons on the outside, but your job and your success is determined by the five guys up front. I, I think the Bengals are going to be better in that area up front. And like I say, I'm really anxious to see what Jonah Williams can do this year. He never stepped on the field, even in training camp last year. I, I think that'll be a, a big plus for them. And so I think the offensive line, you know, will be an upgrade. And I think there will be success. It's always nice talking to former players who are so informative about the team today, talking with Bengals God, legend, Ken Anderson. You can donate to his organization at KenAndersonAlliance.org. I wanted to ask another question from our comment section from Sixer Alex, and he wants to he wants to know why you think that Paul Brown chose Tiger Johnson over Bill, Wal- Bill Walsh to succeed him. Because Bill Johnson was more ready to be head coach than Bill Walsh was. You know, Tiger had been, a, uh, you know, a career assistant in the National Football League after a great playing career with the San Francisco 49ers. And I think, you know, he was the center on the all 50-year team that they had uh, before the, the latest one. Um, a great offensive line coach, uh, a great NFL coach. And 
And I remember when that happened, as sorry I was as I was to see Bill leave, um, I really believed that Paul Brown made the right decision in naming Bill Johnson as the head coach. You know, history proves that maybe that wasn't the, the best decision. But, uh, no, I was firmly behind that decision when it was made back in 1976. Ken, uh, kind of going back to um, – a kind of current state of affairs with the, with the Cincinnati Bengals, new quarterback, second year head coach, young guy. You've mentioned the offensive line kind of question marks and, and potential optimism. Where, where should fans expectations be right now at for 2020? I know it's a weird year based on the, the COVID crisis and everything going on. So who knows what the NFL landscape is going to really look like, but what should fan expectations be for this year? And then maybe 21, 22, with this new core, new coaching group, kind of maybe getting its feet under them? I think you're going to see marked improvement this year. You know, I'm not predicting, you know, playoffs or anything like that, but I think you're going to see a marked improvement. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> you know, one of the things, you know, Joe Burrow has won at every level he's been at, whether it's, it's high school, whether it's in college, and I'm, I'm sure he's going to win at this level too. He comes in from – you know, is there more of a, a pressure-packed arena to play in than the Southeastern, Southeastern Conference? I mean, he played in big games every week, and the bright lights uh, never got to him. And one of the things I'm excited about is that I never saw him have a bad game. You know, and it's sometimes it's hard to evaluate college quarterbacks because sometimes, you know, everybody looks so wide open in college when you're scouting him. But you saw him make NFL-type throws, both in the pocket and outside the pocket. So uh, he's a real bright guy. Um, you know, I, I'm so impressed with him, with, with what he's done, you know, from his Heisman Trophy speech to make the lives better in his hometown of Athens and Athens County, you know, and raising money for the food bank to make sure that, that people are fed there, to his stand on social injustice that he's, that he's come out with. Uh, he understands his platform. He's a leader. Uh, I think the team will follow him. And like I say, he comes in from a, a big-time situation. And like I say, it's, I think every NFL stadium that he plays in is going to be smaller than every college stadium that he played in. So it's, it's, it's not going to be a big adjustment for him. And I, I think he's going to have a, a very good year. But let's, let's not put too much pressure on him the first year. Let's let him get his feet wet. But I, I think you're going to see marked improvement from the Bengals. My last question is very simple. 65% completion percentage in 1974 is insane. Do you look at today's game and think I can complete 95% of my passes? Um, I would love to be playing today. Um, if you remember, and I think it was my 10th year in the league, was 1981, uh, the year we went to the Super Bowl. I was the second-leading rusher on the team behind mm -hmm. Johnson. So this RPO stuff that they do would have been right up my alley. I was a mobile enough guy to do that. You know, I could make plays out of the, the pocket. Um, I would have had to learn the shotgun. You know, that's something we didn't really do with Bill Walsh. And, uh, you know, I I always like being under center because, you know, my first step away, I'm seeing what the secondary is doing. If I'm in the shotgun, the first thing I'm doing is looking for the football. And my eyes go down. Now i got to find everybody else again. So that wasn't kind of my forte. I think I could have handled it, though. 
Ken, before we get to, because uh, we want to hear about your your foundation and we want to know all about that, how to donate, how we can help. Uh, and thank you so much for for joining us. I know I asked for like 10 or 15 minutes and we've gone way on. So thank you for, for being here. You're, you're, you're good. I, I'm having fun. Good. Um, I just want to ask, I, I think I saw this also in our live chat, um, and this may be uh, a little bit of a delicate topic related to the, the Pro Football Hall of Fame topic, but... The Cincinnati Bengals have a little bit of a trouble. Have a little bit of trouble also with a Ring of Honor, a way that they that they recognize their past greats like yourself. They've done some things, you know, at games where you've been on the sidelines and or honored uh, at halftime, that sort of thing. But not an official Ring of Honor, not a team Hall of Fame. Your thoughts on that? Do you think that's forthcoming? Uh, do you hope to see it in the near future? I would hope to see it in, in the future. And, and I don't know what the reasons are. Um, you know, I've got a very good relationship with Mike Brown. Uh, you know, every, whenever I'm in town, except for the last time when nobody could get in the stadium, but club personnel, but other than that, we always go up and we, we chat. And, and I think, you know, at some point in time, things like that will happen. But, but I know, you know, the, the Bengals organization, I, I'm proud to have been a part of it. Uh, I, I think, in my mind, we've got a great football tradition. We have a great past, and I think we have a, a, a great future. So, uh, you know, like I say, I mean, between you know, I think Kenny Riley deserves more recognition. I think Isaac Curtis, my gosh, you know, you yeah. look at the impact that he had on the National Football League in 1973 when he came in. I always said he was Jerry Rice before Jerry Rice. You know, he came in, and, and everybody in the league feared what he could do. Um, the classiest guy, uh, you know, I've ever met. And uh, so I would like to, to, to see Isaac get a lot more attention than he gets as well. All class, just as I expected from, from Ken Anderson joining us on the program. Ken, you uh, founded and uh, co, uh, you are, I think, still the sitting president of the Ken Anderson Alliance. Um, tell us, if you would, uh, a little bit about the background as to why this started, how, why you started it, and the mission of the program. And then we can talk a little bit as to how our listeners can either get involved, donate, all of that. Well, you know, originally we started this. So I guess about 10 years ago that uh, my wife, Christy, and I have a nephew, Drew, that's severely autistic. And we saw what he was, was going through. And, and, you know, at, at one point, uh, you know, he was about 18 and then he had, oh, you know, he's, now 27, probably has the intellect of a five or six-year-old. And, and he was in a situation in Pedro, Ohio. And he was, you know, 10 cabins, 10 boys. And, and he was doing well in that environment. Um, and then all of a sudden he aged out at 22 and he had to go in some group homes that was not as successful. And so we had this idea of a community where he could live in uh, and be successful, to live life to the fullest capabilities to him. And... So we started the Ken Anderson uh, Foundation, and about four or five years ago, we merged. I got a call from uh, Mayor Cranley, and uh, he had been very supportive of, of our efforts. And he said, you know, there's a, another group, Lighthouse Landing, that's uh, trying to do the same thing that you're doing. And they were basically a group of Down Syndrome's parents. And so we met and we had synergy, and, and we merged together, and uh, we've made great strides in, in the last four years. And you know, what we're trying to do is create live, work, and engage opportunities for adults with developmental disabilities. Uh, right now, I mean, before the, the, the virus hit, you know, we had over 20 play or engage programs a month.
that's serviced about 220 adults, you know, going out to a movie, going to a Reds game, a Cyclones game, uh, going to the mall, um, going to play video games to get them out engaged in the, the community of, of very successful, uh, you know, things that we were doing. And uh, we had some great people that behind that uh, from our, our foundation. And now we have to do it all virtually, and uh, which, which is very difficult. Um, from a work standpoint, uh, we have an aquaponics venture up and running on the west side of town, uh, O2, um, where we were raising, you know, growing lettuce uh, indoors. And uh, we employ about eight or 10 adults there, which is a real job, real wages. Well, now, unfortunately, a lot of the restaurants have been closed. They can't do as much. So we're selling that curbside now. So you can go, you can find out about this. And But I think the, the exciting thing is that we're working to build an inclusive community uh, out in Springfield Township, that we've, we've got the property, it's purchased, the zoning uh, is approved. We've got a, a few more steps to take, but hopefully within the next year, we're breaking ground on that where they can live, you know, our people can live in a, a safe environment. Uh, and, and like I say, you know, my goal is, is to have our nephew live his life to the fullest that he can. Well, we hope to definitely see that. I know you uh, were on a good friend of our show, Bengal Jim, uh, recently. Uh, I actually had the pleasure of being on his show a few weeks back as well. Great guy. And uh, I know they raised quite a bit of money for your foundation. I am doing a rally cry for our listeners listening to this episode to donate, donate, donate. I've put the link in the live chats for both the YouTube and uh, in the YouTube Instant Sea Jungle uh, Facebook channel. So click on that link, donate how you can. Anything else you want to tell us about the uh, the organization and how to get involved, where the donations go, anything else that we should know? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, all the money that, that is raised, you know, goes to the foundation. And, you know, now's a tough time. I, I know we had planned, you know, one of our, our big fundraisers, uh, well, you know, we were going to have this spring is two years ago. We had legends past and present uh, down at the stadium with Andy Dalton. He brought some of the current players. I had some of the former players uh, a great night. And, and we both raised about $50,000 for Andy's foundation and for mine. This year was going to be even bigger and better than ever. It was our Super Bowl legends. Boomer was coming in. Uh, we're going to have guys from his Super Bowl team, guys from my Super Bowl team. Of course, that had to be canceled because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, one of our big things in the fall is our stadium stride where, you know, we, we walk the Bengal stadium, we go down the field, we have different obstacles for people down on there, but all of a sudden, you know, now with, with the rules of the NFL, we're not going to be able to do that because we can't get on the field per NFL regulations. So, uh, we're going to have our fall legends. We hope, uh, you know, in October, we don't know if we're going to be able to, to pull that one off yet. So, I think a lot of nonprofits are struggling this time. Our, our fundraising uh, uh, events, just we can't pull them off because we can't have the crowds. So any way that you can donate to help us out would be much appreciated. Well, we will definitely do that. And once this show concludes, I will definitely be donating uh, some of my own funds to, to assist you. I, I've said this before, our listeners know, I actually have co-founded and co-run a nonprofit myself, a very small one in comparison to what you're doing. So I, I know, and John, has, has, uh, my co-host, has contributed to that. So nonprofits, 
charities and organizations that are doing things like what your foundation is doing is very near and dear to this show's heart. We want to show our support and we will show our support. So, um, you know, we hope that uh, our show will have at least a little bit of an impact on what you guys are trying to do. It'll have a big impact. And one of the things I want to say, if you go to the, the our website, KenAndersonAlliance.org, uh, you can go shopping there. That if you would like a, an autographed Ken Anderson jersey, you can purchase that uh, online at our website. Uh, if you want Ken Anderson Alliance uh, gear that we have, uh, you, that's available as well. So you can actually go ahead and, and donate and get something out of it as well. That's awesome. Well, I've... Uh... Again, I put the the link in the live chats. We will do that also on the post after the show for onsincyjungle.com. Ken, thank you so much. You've doubled the amount of time we requested. I, I can't even say thank you enough. We will do what we can to help uh, grow what your organization is, try, is trying to do. And I think it's a really great cause. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on this program. We would love to have you back. If you have another event or you ne or need a future fundraising for your organization, we would love to have you back and talk some more bangles, obviously, but uh, we would, we would love to keep helping you out how we can. Well, I hope you'll call me back. You've got my number now. I do. I do. When the football season comes, let's do this again because uh, we'll, we'll see. I think it's going to be a good year for the Bengals. Let's just hope we play football. I know. I know. Yeah, I know. That's uh, that's the hope. Fingers crossed. Thank you, Mr. Anderson. Appreciate it. We'll have you back on soon. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That is Ken Anderson, former Bengals quarterback, former Bengals great. Uh, that was amazing. John, that was one of the best interviews I think we can say we've ever had on this program. And we have had quite a few, Anthony Munoz, Icky Woods, Tim McGee, and Ken Anderson uh, gave us double the amount of time, if maybe even more than double the amount of time that we had requested. So um, do us a favor, if you're listening to the show live, if you are listening after the fact, donate. Nonprofits need your help. I know it's a tough time financially for a lot of people, but it's also a tough financial time for nonprofit organizations. And this is a great cause that helps a lot of people donate. Uh, and I will be doing so after the fact. And I really hope that we can really make a large, sizable donation as a program, John. Um, that was that was awesome. Double the time and double the career output that the Bengals probably expected from him. Rob Johnson, <laughs> the comics in the comments section. I keep saying comics. The comments section saying the best NFL player that's not in the Hall of Fame. I know we talked a lot about how he should be, but that statement's very bold. But when you look at profile references, approximate value metric, and you look at the players with the highest approximate value, Peyton Manning, Julius Peppers, Charles Woodson are not eligible for Hall of Fame, but Jim Marshall, Eric Allen, Ken Anderson are, and those are the, the three highest retired players that are not in the Hall of Fame. And there is nothing in the Bengals stadium or even on the Bengals website for people to find out more information about him. I don't know why after listening to that 30 minute interview that the Bengals would not want to promote this guy in as a part of their history. For some reason, they just don't aside from just the 50th anniversary team. But my, my, even my generation knows little to nothing about him. I explained to all my friends who are even remotely interested in the greatest quarterbacks of all time, who do, that we don't know about. And there's Ken Anderson's, is is the definition of of that term and just nobody my age knows about him and his own team does, for some reason doesn't want to promote him but i mean that was a fantastic interview and there's no reason why this guy he should not be one of the main ambassadors of this team for my generation and the generations to come yeah and you know i hesitated asking him about the ring of honor stuff and the hall of fame stuff uh pure class 
as expected from him uh, in terms of what he, how he answered it. He, he, you know, talked about the greatness of others around him. You know, I mean, that's just the kind of guy Ken Anderson is, but like you said, the numbers, especially for that era of football, do not lie. Um, you know, there were some ebbs and flows to his career and his production um, that was in part of his play, but also in part of what was going on with the team. But I mean, NFL MVP, all pro, pro I mean, the list goes on and on. Even if you dive, dive a little deeper into certain metrics, they're there. I mean, the answer is there and he, he deserves to be in the hall of fame. So hopefully the folks at Canton and the pro football writers of America finally do the right thing and getting him into Canton. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're going to get to the nine nine for nine positional previews. Do we want to do do we want to do uh, special teams along with tight ends this week? Just kind of do a little quick nod to special teams, John. Or do you want to? Since we went a little longer with Ken, do you want to? What do you want to do about that? I, I think enough people have clamored about it that we should just do it. Okay. Well, we'll get end out a double dose. Okay. Well, we'll get there in just a second. You can take the reins on that one, my friend, as you have with that great series. Before you do, I got just got to remind everybody: you can get this show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Megaphone, iHeartRadio. It's also on YouTube. All of our stuff is on CincyJungle.com. So go get the program how you can. Go donate to the Ken Anderson Alliance. Please, please, please donate. And uh, hopefully we make a big impact for him. And our thanks to Ken Anderson for joining us on the program this week. Ken Anderson talked about Bob Trumpy as one of his favorite targets. Bob Trumpy played tight end. And tight end is the last position that we were scheduled to talk about for the 9 for 9 series. But we're going to make it a 10 for 10 and talk about special teams afterwards. But first, let's talk about the tight ends. We kind of saved this one for last because honestly... Just not the many interesting things to talk about. And position group is one of the weakest on the teams, believe it or not. Last year was a gigantic struggle for this group, for the guys staying healthy, for the guys making an impact, and an offense that just rarely even utilized the tight end. 
the Bengals were, I believe, the 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 team with the highest usage of 11 personnel, which is having only one tight end on the field. And for whatever reason, this team felt inclined to take a tight end in the second round of last year's draft and a tight end that not a lot of people expected to go that early in the draft and Drew Sample. But I think Drew Sample is where the conversation probably has to start because we know that CG is almost still the, the starter on the depth chart. But it's the biggest question in terms of just what happens to Sample. What is his progression? What is his development going to be like? What is his role in this offense going to be like? So, Anthony, do you foresee the Bengals trying to juice the most out of Drew Sample as they possibly can? Or is it just time to accept the fact that he's just a one-dimensional type of player and just utilize him to his perceived best strength, which is that of run blocking? This may be a bit of a, an exaggeration in some people's eyes, but I actually think Drew Sample and his second-year progression, regression, stasis, whatever, is a big factor into where this offense and where this team's success will go. Because you don't know, you know, you think A.J. Green is going to be finally healthy and all that. The recent track record shows otherwise. Same thing with John Ross. Tyler Boyd uh, has been very productive the past couple of years. He's been nicked up here and there. Um, You've got a rookie quarterback. He needs another outlet. He needs a guy maybe that won't command a lot of defensive attention, but can still move the sticks and all of that. I think he's, he's a big factor into what this offense can be, what this team can do. And if he doesn't, then it's a problem. It really is. I think the Bengals will try and use him in more creative ways this year. I don't know if they'll try and have him in that a little bit more in that Ryan Hewitt-ish H-back role. Uh, maybe that's what they try and do, especially with some perceived shortcomings on the offensive line to aid in the run blocking game. Um, I think it would be wise to to at least sometimes think about using him as in a fullback type of role like that. But I, I think I, I think this is going to be a feast or famine type of career for Drew Sample. I think we're either going to see a guy that really flourishes and blossoms and becomes a really nice piece in this offense and a really important piece in this offense, or it's going to be wow, that was a really bad second round pick. And it's now kind of a pattern after year one, year two. Um, So I think the Bengals will will try and use him. It's really a matter of if his skill set, his football IQ and all of that can rise to that level. It's it's interesting because I remember from this past combine, the 2020 combine, the, the tight end group looked extremely underwhelming. And not only that, but just from an athleticism standpoint, there were just not a lot of, there's, there was just not a lot of speed that came into the NFL this year at that position. You look at Drew Sample's athletic profile, it's pretty much above average compared to his size. Being 6'5", 255 pounds, and running a 4'7", 4'7", is like like the cutoff of like having above average or just average speed at that position. But not only just above average speed, but above average ex- explosion and above average flexibility with his cone and shuttle. He's an above average athlete from a testing standpoint. You just don't really see it. It's almost He's just one of those players that just tests better than the type of athlete that he is when he puts on the pads and whatnot. And I think there is potential for him to be a decent receiving intermediate option like CG Uzoma is right now. But I just think if this is a guy that like Marvin Lewis drafts and they, their scouting report for him at the top with bull levers plus run blocker, because that's what he was at Washington. He just wasn't used as a receiver. He was not used as a downfield threat. And I know that the quarterback situation at Washington was, subpar at best, but there was just nothing on his college resume that showed 
that he was a legitimate receiving threat. He was a, he was a run blocker, he was a pass blocker, and he was a good one in the Pac-12. His rookie year, he was abysmal in that regard. And albeit, the rest of the tight ends and the offense line in general had a terrible time run blocking this year. There was a bunch of miscommunication issues. The scheme did not match the personnel. It was it was terrible. But just in the one-on-one matchups that I observed every week when I watched him because I I, I did I do the rookie reports. He just looked overmatched, and it, it's not like it wasn't a size issue. He's about average to above average for in terms of what an NFL tight end looks like, but he just really ran into some issues with strength this this past year. And I wonder if like if, if this is a guy that Marvin Lewis is coaching, if he can't even do the one thing that he's supposed to do well, he may not. He may have never have gotten opportunities to grow as a receiver. But yeah, you're right. I think Zach Taylor is different. He he knows the type of player that he thinks that he was at Washington. And he's going to get an opportunity to do that because the guy in front of him, CJ Zoma, he just he's not as dynamic as I think we want him to be. He's he's always shown flashes of, of being a vertical threat, a guy that can supplement what Tyler Eifert was when when he wasn't injured. But he's almost struggled last year too, and he did not play like the guy that they signed for six million dollars a year after the 2018 season. And it, it's really a question of if they just want to hide this group or if they want to try to to maximize whatever skills that they have because. If I'm the if I'm Brian Callahan and Zach Taylor, I'm building this offense, especially considering what Joe Burrow did did best at LSU. I'm I'm hiding the tight ends as, as much as possible. There's definitely situations where I just don't have tight ends on the field. But there was also the the fact that Joe Burrow loved having Thaddeus Moss as his target at, at, at tight end at the tight end position, and Thaddeus Moss was not a great athlete at that position, but he just developed a certain chemistry. So there is an avenue for one of these tight ends to really step up and be a critical part of this offense, even though the receiving core is stacked. Yeah. The, I, I think back to last year, if you remember the game, I think it was against the Browns when Andy Dalton made his return and won. Um, you know, he, he was benched and he came back. There was a, a game and I think uh, Eifert was in there and Uzama was in there where Dalton could have had like three or four touchdown passes in that game. He threw passes to both, I think, Eifert and Uzama, who dropped passes in the end zone that were kind of gimmies, if I remember Mm -hmm. correctly. Um, And and that kind of sticks with me, especially now that the Bengals have decided to move on from Eifert and stick with Uzama because it just – was was that – and granted, it's just one play. It happens. But is that indicative of, you know, just – a little bit of a microcosm of un- unrealized potential that's never going to be there with CJ Uzama. They drafted him. He was a raw guy, barely played the, he didn't even have position coach at Auburn when they drafted him. Um, you know, real raw, obviously the athleticism, the size and all of that's there. He's made, you mentioned the flashes and, and is it always just going to be this with him? Or if you give him the increased workload, which we have seen him get because Eifert has been out, is he ever going to rise to um, uh, being a, a pretty good to really good tight end? I don't know. Uh, he is making some decent money for the production that he has had in his career, but there are just some things in his career that stick out where you go, ah, I, I just take that next step. You know, take that take that next step in your career, and I wonder if that's ever going to be there. And, and I wonder what is the future plan for this this position group because looking back it, it seems like like Uzoma was just a signing that they made because they could because he was affordable and he upped his value a little bit because of the 2018 season that he had 439 receiving yards three touchdowns on 43 receptions that's he's probably not eclipsing those marks and it's very those are very similar numbers to like the average Jermaine Gresham year 
Jermaine Gershon was also a high effort blocker who was who was a, a better athlete in shorts than he was when, when the pads came on. And that was always an issue of just awkwardness. I don't think that's the thing with Uzoma. But Uzoma's developed into a leader in the locker room, a guy that is is, is, an, is an elder who's established and young guys kind of look on him. He's got a great relationship with Giovanni Bernard, who I think share that type of leadership and older brother type of role. But I look at the sample pick and I'm thinking, okay, there's no way they take a guy this high without having some type of a future plan for him. And, you know, the, the plan, at least from a macro perspective, was you have Eifert on a one-year deal and you don't think that he's going to come back. Maybe he's the long-term replacement there. But now C.J. Zama has two years left on this deal, minimal guaranteed money left. I, I wonder if they give Sample more opportunities this year if Uzoma does not take that next step, like you said, and then maybe 2021 comes around, Sample shows some much-needed progression. Uzoma stays basically in the rut that he's in. Maybe there's a, a scenario where Uzoma's cut, Sample becomes the number one tight end, and then you're back to really square one at the position where you have next to no depth. Yeah, and it's interesting. You bring up the the next to no depth, looking at the Bengals' depth behind those two. Uh, a lot of undrafted guys and or round seven guys. Uh, in fact, that's most of it. Perhaps the most intriguing guy, John, is Moritz Boehringer. <laughs> uh, you know, he's been the guy that was drafted, I think, a handful of years ago by the Vikings as a wide receiver uh, because he ran like a 4-4-40 guy from Germany, played some, uh, I think, World League football uh, type of thing. And then that league collapsed. So uh, they gave him a shot in the NFL and he's kind of been there. Um, international player that they've kept on the practice squad and been able to hang on and groom. But you've got Moritz Bowringer, Seathan Carter, Jordan Franks, Mason Shrek, and Mitchell Wilcox. Now, Wilcox is the kid that I, I think if you remember when we looked back at the draft, John, I said that that was my guy that I think could make a, uh, a play for making the final roster. And I said that because of all the names I just listed, right? Bowringer, Carter, Franks, Shrek. And then him, and then Wilcox himself there. So, uh, not a lot of uh, not a lot of toys in the cupboard, so to speak. Right. And on Facebook, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan is saying, if you don't have one of the main tight ends in the league, then the tight end position is completely positionless. And honestly, he's got a point. Like, if you don't, if you don't have like a true asset, if you don't have someone who's comparable to that of a Greg, a Greg Kittle or Travis Kelsey or a Zach Ertz in that regard, if you don't have someone that, that can be split out into um, tight splits or even out wide and you can act as a big receiver, then it, uh, it almost becomes just a marginal type of asset that you have on your roster. If you can if you can afford to have multiple, you know, three or four receivers on the field all the time and just not worry about having to incorporate a tight end of that caliber into your passing game, then it's not that high of a priority. And I kind of understand that in the way that they're building this team it's just a matter of if, if that's the plan or if it's not, because people are still on this train of having Auden Tate convert to a tight end. Auden Tate would still be slow as a tight end. Like I, it, he, got, he got a little bit faster, but he's not going to be breaking, you know, the four six boundary even barrier even at this point. He's not stacking cornerbacks like some of the more athletic tight ends that, that you have. He's just a big possession receiver, and if you make him a tight end, if you make him do more things he's not comfortable doing, he, that's just going to minimize his value. But again, looking at the bottom of the depth chart. I actually remember Maurice Boehringer was on a German podcast or some type of a football European football podcast. And he basically flat out admitted that he was essentially just, he's on the team to be just like, like a ball boy, just, just someone that, that just takes up space. And it, it, it's, I guess it's typical Mike Brown to just have a guy that 
you can have as just an extra body because of some type of a, of a loophole. But I, I don't know how much longer he's available to be in the NFL and on the Bengals, but I think he's just around for whatever expiration date that is. Uh, you mentioned Seathan Carter, who's probably the favorite to be the third tight end just because um, Darren Simmons is still the special teams coordinator here, and Carter now becomes one of his more prominent players in special teams, and that's why he made the team as the fourth tight end last year. I believe Mason Shrek was the other tight end to make it, and I'm I'm surprised he stuck around this long because you know being a seventh round player that had to struggle through injuries and just not being able to see the field, he's still he's still fairly athletic, and I think that's an asset relative compared to what the rest of this position group is. So this really is Mason Shrek's make or make it or break it year. But even if he does make it, it's not like he's going to see this immense opportunity. And the guy you mentioned, Mitchell Wilcox, I know nothing next to nothing about him. But if any of these guys can surprise as like a vertical threat, they're going to see however much of preseason that the NFL is going to play this year. And it may convince them to go to four tight ends. But I think we're just we're just seeing the three that we previously mentioned. Yeah. It's what you said about Bowringer is interesting. I hadn't heard about him being on that podcast and saying that, you know, you can say, yeah, Mike, Mike Brown likes to find a, a loophole somehow. That is true. But I also think Mike Brown has shown a track record of trying to take on projects and have his coaches take on projects and try and mine whatever they can out of them. Remember the, remember Jason Shirley, how they, he swapped back from defensive line to offensive line. Remember he tried to do, he tried to make Chris Harrington. I think he was a, a Cincinnati kid, UC kid, right? Uh, he tried to make him a, a, who was kind of an edge rusher to see if he could play tight end. Remember that was a hard knocks thing where the coaches were like, what? Um, so there, there are a number of instances where Mike Brown has used, and maybe Bo Ringer falls into that. But I think, as we have said with other position groups, John, as we've done these nine for nine, it's going to come down to the, beyond sample and Uzama, it's going to come down to who gives you what on special teams. Um, and, and I think that's probably going to win the day in terms of who can do what in that on coverage, punt coverage, kickoff coverage, that sort of thing. And speaking of special teams, good segue. Let's let's just do it. Four specialists are on the roster right now, and I guess the biggest question is: Does Dan Godsell beat out Clark Harris? No, he's not. Um, I, I guess I, I don't know because they usually, you know, sometimes they'll add like an, an, an extra punter or an extra kicker in in training camp to just give those guys reps. So I know Godsell has been brought back uh, at least last year as a guy that just gives. Clark Harris some reps or some rest there, but there's there's no Jonathan Brown this year. There, there's obviously no Jake Elliott to push out a Mike Nugent or Randy Bullock in the, in this scenario. Kevin Huber still has one year left on his contract. I think Clark Harris also has just one year left on his contract as well. But it's just you know Bullock is what he is. Luckily, Kevin Huber and Clark Harris are what they are too. And at 35 and 36 years old respectively, they're not changing. I don't, I don't think anybody is changing here. I think Darren Simmons really values continuity between his three specialists uh, because they know how, and, you know, uh, Huber knows how Clark Harris snaps, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Bullock knows how Huber holds, right? I mean, it, it's, it's a, it's kind of a, what do you want to call it? An assembly line type of thing. Uh, a conveyor belt like it and it has to work it has to work well granted it does you don't see a lot of you know muffed 
holds or all that kind of stuff at the NFL level, but it happens and you have to make sure that you build that continuity. So in that respect, I don't see any changes. However, the one kind of, I, I guess, maybe we're kind of creating a talking point a little bit by doing this, but one little caveat, what if Bullock really struggles in limited time in the preseason or at the beginning of the season and it's costing the team points, it's costing them games. Um, you know, we've seen teams kind of have a short hook with some of these kickers. Uh, Bullock actually had a decent year last year, but there are still some concerns about leg strength, particularly when you play in the AFC North in the weather and, you know, all kinds of different elements. So I think there, if, if there are, if it's just like a can't avoid this type of struggle, um, maybe that's where the Bengals may have a kicking change. I don't see it happening though. Well, Bullock is also on a one-year deal too. I think the, the, the trio there is, is only on under contract through this year alone. But, you know, if they wanted a bigger leg at kicker, they would have gotten one by now. We we have clearly established that Randy Bullock cannot consistently kick beyond 50 yards. The fact that he made, I think, a 60-yard field goal against the Dolphins last year was just – it was fittingly miraculous compared to the rest of how the rest of that game unfolded and the fact that he made one in the game that where they really shouldn't have won in the first place. But, yeah, if they do replace Bullock, it will be because of that. Like, the only reason why – they cut Jake Elliott is because he had struggles in the preseason and they just went with the more consistent, the, the the lesser guy that they knew in Randy Bullock that they know would give him more accuracy and would sacrifice um, distance in that regard. But, you know, Jake Elliott has carved out obviously a great career with the Eagles. I think he just signed like a, a multi-year extension with them because he has one of the biggest legs in the game. And that is an asset. That's pretty much more important than just mid, you know, average or above average accuracy inside of 50 yards to have a weapon, especially for an offense that, typically doesn't like to go for it beyond like in between the 45 and 35 yard line to have a guy that you have confidence in at least getting there. That's an asset that not every team can boast, but it's also a reason why there's a reason why, you know, you, you can find kickers basically anywhere. And especially after the draft, if they have to go get a guy that can just make consistent field goals, they can find one off the street. No problem. Like they could have survived with Jonathan Brown from Louisville a couple years ago, but they decided yeah. just to just go with the more consistent one, the guy that they knew. But, I mean, there's a reason why it's just not smart to draft kickers because you can find guys after the draft, you can find guys on this, off the street that can give you marginal um, seasons ba- based off the guys that, that you know who have been in the league for a long time. So if that's the one position that they're struggling in, it, it's inexcusable at this point to stick with a kicker that consistently misses. And if the Bengals are in a position where they want to hold on to a guy in Bullock who for some reason at 30 years old just decides to have the, shank, the, the shanks, which I guess can't happen with kickers as the age, then there's no reason why they can't go out and find one who is better. Yeah. And again, we talked about the waiver wire situation and all of that around final cuts. You know, maybe that's one of the areas that they look at addressing. If they see something that is of great concern during the preseason, the Bengals um, kind of depending on how all of that works out and the claims that are made, they do as it, as waivers would hit, after final cuts, the Bengals would have that first right of uh, claiming or refusal on certain players. So that may be something, but I think you and I are in agreement. It sounds like John, we expect to see the same three specialists as it is um, in those critical areas. Do we want to talk about punt, punt return, punt returners, kick returners, uh, coverage teams, anything like that? Yeah, I think we touched on a little bit when covering the positions that those guys play in, but I think right now you're looking at, um, Brandon Wilson as your starting kick returner, Alex Erickson as your starting punt returner, 
And then Darius Phillips is the guy that'll, that'll re- replace uh, Wilson at times, a kick returner. And maybe the guy to boot out Alex Erickson, that pump returner, unless somebody else steps up in, in training camp that we don't know. I know Giovanni Bernard typically does some of those reps in training camp, but he's never been a legitimate option at that position. And honestly, at this point, with the, how loaded the running back position is, the fact that they want to feature Joe Mixon more with the contract that they're going to give him, it would be the worst thing in the world to get Gio, Gio more involved as a punt returner. Although, yeah. because he's like 29-30, he may just put his foot down and say, yeah, I'm not doing that. Right. Yeah. I don't – I that doesn't seem to be Gio's nature, but maybe. Um, you know, stranger things have happened. And, you know, it's funny how you said – Darius Phillips may be kind of the guy who spells the other guys. Um, that's a, that's almost what Adam Jones did a couple of years ago. Right. You know, when they had Tate and they had some other guys in there, they'd say, "Hey, we need a spark." Uh, Adam, get in there, and he 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 was incredible at returning <laughs> kicks. He was, he was incredible at returning kicks. It was it was it was like every time he touched the ball, it was like, "Oh my gosh, huge play." It was hilariously frustrating because every time they had Brandon Tate out there, it'd be the same twenty-yard return, right. and then they had Adam Jones. You're thinking this this is going to go at least to the forty-yard line, and it always did. And they just decided just to not do it because they just wanted the safer option. I know, it, yeah, I know, and it goes back to my my thinking of, you know, play the guys that give you the best chance to win. You can't worry about injury. You can't worry about that. I mean, you, you do want to be concerned about that. Obviously, you don't want guys getting hurt just as a general rule, but you have to also play the guys to their specific skill sets and what they give in terms of the best chance to win. We could probably do an entire episode on that. And uh, Marvin Lewis wasn't always the best at doing that, but hopefully Zach Taylor does a better job. Anything else you want to cover before we drop the mic and get out of here, John? No, it's been it's been a productive nine weeks of the series. I have to our listeners that we've done a good job of breaking down the entire roster, and I hope it'll all be worth it for a roster worth covering this season and if the season happens at all. Yep. Very good topic on your part. I think that uh, it spanned well over, you know, the, the ebbs and flows of the NFL calendar. So thank you, John, for spearheading this. It's been great. And what do you got next for us? <laughs> Putting you on the spot. Well, I'll let you know next week at eight, at eight twenty eight in the afternoon. Uh, yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm playing around obviously, but uh Good stuff, John. Appreciate it. Let's let's get on out of here. Uh, what do you have for us? Uh, it is Canada Day, so happy Canada Day to our, if we have any listeners up north, a country that is handling this crisis so much better that maybe we should consider playing the NFL in CFL stadiums. CFL stadiums, yeah, that could be could be an option. I actually don't. Uh, I can't really think of much. This has been a um, a very interesting episode. I guess really my mic drop is just to reiterate to donate to the Ken Anderson Alliance Foundation. Thanks to Ken Anderson for coming on to the program. I, I've said this before, nonprofits need help. They need financial help because of this crisis, the COVID crisis that is going on. They can't throw in-person fundraising events. They can't throw a lot of these golf tournaments and all kinds of different things that they usually do to raise the funds needed to achieve their mission and their goals. So they are relying on people like us, Bengals fans, that have long loved Ken Anderson and what he did on the field as a, as a player and a coach for the team and, and everything he stands for as a, as a human being and great guy. He needs our help. So please, please, please donate. Um, I've put the link in the live chats or just go to KenAndersonAlliance.org. 
and um, you can you can hit the donate button there, and uh, you can find a way to donate. And he even said, I think if you donate certain amounts of money, I think you can get some pretty cool stuff, right? Uh, some stuff from him. So that it, it, that should be an incentive enough. So uh, please help him out how you can. Can't reiterate our gratitude enough for him spending 30 minutes, 30 plus minutes with us. It was great. Uh, having him on. We look forward to having him on again soon. So that's going to do it for us. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. Get it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Megaphone. You can get it on iHeartRadio, our YouTube channel. All of our stuff is on CincyJungle.com. The Cincy Jungle podcast channel. So if you want to listen to the audio slate, the Cincy Jungle podcast channel, you have to search in the audio podcast for Cincy Jungle um, sometimes Georgia Black Insider doesn't necessarily come up because we are one of a small handful of other great SB Nation Bengals podcasts, Orange is the New Black by Ace and Zim. Uh, sorry if I spit when I speak by Daddy O McDuke and Dr. Hoji Smoji. And Chalk Talk by Matt Minnick is also on there. So get to all of our shows. We hope you like ours. We hope you like theirs. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. I'll see you later, John. <laughs>